shatters the frown of the nations in the thoughts of their hearts. God takes the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. You're listening to Faith and Reason 360. Support for this program comes from the Joe and Louise Cook Foundation, Barbara Winland Director, and the D.L. Deitch Jr. Foundation, promoting critical thinking and advocating for justice in the world. I'm Deborah Dykes. And I'm Ann Phelps. And also hosting with us today is David Dykes. Welcome, David. Thank you. Welcome to our fifth episode of Jesus versus Caesar with special guest Dr. Jorg Rieger, who is Distinguished Professor of Theology and Cal Turner Chancellor's Chair in Wesleyan Studies in the Divinity School and Graduate Department of Religion at Vanderbilt University. He is also Director of newly founded program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Welcome, Dr. Rieger. And thank you so much for having me. We are so happy. And this is our fifth episode in this series. And Anne, welcome back. I know you were off on our last episode, so we're glad you're back. Thank you. I'm going to get right into this fifth chapter. First, the title. The title is The Way, The Truth, and The Life. Very intriguing title. So I want to go right to one of your statements in this book. And you say that depending on how Jesus's claim is to be the way, the truth, and the life, how it's understood, interreligious engagements may be off the table. Oh, my goodness. I want you to speak to that. I think this is the way a lot of people understand that famous passage from the Gospel of John assuming that truth means there's only one thing that can ever be possible. And and this is a top-down understanding of truth that very much compares to what empires usually want to believe you. This understanding of truth as coming from the top-down is the way empires usually handle the truth. There is no truth but my truth. There is no alternative. And what I'm saying, what I'm suggesting in this chapter, there's other ways of taking the truth seriously, respecting it, but not assuming that it crowds out what's valuable and truthful to other people. This is a really complicated concept for us to to grasp in our our current world and our current minds that truth doesn't have to be this winner-takes-all mentality that one person gets to say uh, that that everything is true according to that person's perspective. For On a very shallow example, I mean, we're all sitting around a table right now and what I see in front of me is different from what all three of you see in front of you, that truth has different angles, and and especially when it's rooted in that experience. And what I love about what you highlight in this book is that Jesus does that. He roots truth in the experience of the daily lives of the people around him, the, the truth of the mustard seed, the truth of these parables that is rooted in reality, which opens the door for us to explore ideas from different vantage points, that different people can encounter truth in different ways, that shapes the way that we encounter God. Um, And you say on, on page 100 in this book, you say, in contrast to the truth of Jesus, unilateral top-down truth, the truth of the powerful, seems unable to register 
what goes on in concrete messiness of reality. And I think that that is a really helpful way in allowing us to wrap our minds around this so difficult concept of, of what truth can be, how we can have truth and perspective at the same time without devolving into an irrelevant relativism. So I think that's that's the specter in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Relativism. So whenever you say, well, maybe we have to rethink um, this dominant notion of truth, then people are worried, right. well, now truth goes out the window and anything mm-hmm. goes. What I'm saying is actually different. Uh, and, and, and you can, maybe an easy example for that is to look at it from a person who is struggling about something. So, mm-hmm. I mean, imagine somebody who's drowning in a lake and who's calling for help and there are five people coming uh, who have different ways of extracting the person from the (laughs) lake or saving them from drowning Um, they may be very different uh, but they could all be successful maybe one one isn't uh, but four are and so you could say in that situation you know what really saves the person from drowning is part of that truth now that doesn't mean anything goes but but something that actually makes a difference, something that actually comes true and that, that helps move us forward. That is what we're talking about. And so I'm saying that in the Jesus tradition, there, there's some space for that because Jesus, in fact, negotiates various truths in his own life. Right. Absolutely. I think it's really, um, that's what I really appreciate about what you're saying in this chapter is you're, you're actually not making the claim that anything goes. You're not making the claim that Jesus said anything goes. You go on in this chapter um, to say we actually do need to draw lines. And, and what, what that looks like is not to say that I'm going to reach across the aisle and we're going to boil down all our differences and say, oh, but we're really more alike than we are different. It's not that naive thing. There are, there are in fact, marked things that Jesus does not stand for. They just may not be the things that we thought. And that is the whole point of the chapter to say, you know, as we negotiate truth, we really have to figure out where can we broaden the picture and where do we need to draw the lines. That's a conversation we're not having because a lot of people who want to draw uh, the lines are not interested in broadening the picture and the people who are broadening the picture are are not interested in, in drawing the lines. And of course, the interesting question then becomes, how and where do you draw the lines? And what I'm suggesting is in the end, you might have to draw the lines where you least expect it, namely back home Mm -hmm. in your own tradition. Oh yes. I think, you know, a lot of this is really abstract. um, And to to follow Jesus' example and and bring it down to the concrete level, um, an example of this is that uh, here in, in the context of Jackson, Mississippi, Christian, traditions and Christian faith can take on a very noticeable character and flavor. I think that that's not going to be surprising to any of our listeners. Right. Um, and, and it's also probably not surprising to our listeners that it can be hard for someone like me or someone like mm-hmm. Debo and David to find religious and spiritual community in that particular style of church. Um, often it is one that is a little bit, has shared some affinities with the religion of the empire. Um, Whereas here in Jackson, I have been shocked to find, not shocked, pleasantly surprised to find incredible spiritual community among some of my friends, but more readily among Jews and Muslims than among other Christians, in part because these are other people 
who are rooted in faith traditions, who care deeply about spirituality and community. So this isn't just people who are individually spiritual but not religious or people who are not interested in spirituality. People who are, much like myself, and people who are outsiders to the cultural norm. And so as we find our own religious traditions and stories moving us toward acting in certain ways in society, caring about justice, caring about community, we find affinity and comfort with one another and can appreciate one another's traditions and one another's stories because we're working towards some of the same goals. For me, one of my Jewish friends said to me the other day in the park as we were watching our kids play, oh, you're totally one of us. How much do you really care about that Jesus guy? And that's the thing, right? I really do. That's the, that's what yeah. makes it special. Yeah. I mm-hmm. love this crazy, radical, activist, mystic guy that we call Jesus because for me, Jesus is the thing that motivates me toward this action, not the Jesus that my Jewish friend has regularly encountered mm-hmm. in his community. Mm-hmm. I want to say something about the truth. <laughs> yes. We, we do ask people to be very nimble around notions of truth because there are different kinds of truth. Yeah. There's mathematical truth. Mm-hmm. There's the truth involved in traffic laws. It either You either obey the law or you don't. There's the truth about what someone said under oath mm-hmm. in a trial. There's the truth about someone did it. So we ask people to make very, very perfect surgical lines between what we're asking them to consider. And it's, I think it's a hard thing. Mm-hmm. We, we shouldn't, we, we need to be careful in assuming the truth is so obvious. Because yeah. to a lot of people who've been reared in the thought structures of the dominant empire or the dominant religious and political system, they've been so taken advantage of by people who, who manipulate the whole idea of being faithful to Christianity and so forth. And so it's, it's uh, pretty difficult for them sometimes. Well, and you're um, talking, truth is such a sensitive word right now. Um, and possibly yeah. it's always been, but I, I, I do believe that it is important. And you do point out, Jorg, in your book, you say that um, uh, Jesus's famous claim to be the truth. Now, remember, we're talking about I am the truth, the way, and the life. So you, I want you to, to share with us a little bit more about what you're saying, um, that uh, Jesus's truth has a distinct, distinctly different flavor than Caesar's mm-hmm. claim to be the kind of truth that uh, settles things without need of any conversation. So you've got Caesar uh, giving Caesar's truth without conversation, but then you've got Jesus uh, initiating conversation and sometimes, as you say, uh, unlikely places there is truth. So I want you to tell us about how that works and what that means, because truth is important here. So that goes back to that moment when John the Baptist from prison sends his disciples to Jesus. This is Matthew 11, um, asking him, are you the one who's supposed to come or should we wait for somebody else? And, And Jesus's response is, go and tell John what you hear and see. 
So there's some real evidence given. And, and the evidence given here has to do with the sick being healed, the dead being raised, good news being preached to the poor. So that's the sort of truth here that has to prove itself. What Jesus does not say is, uh, yes, I am the one, and please do not ask any questions. Or, uh, yes, you have to accept it, whether you believe it or not, uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, but Jesus actually gives some very specific evidence for what's true and what isn't. And so in that sense, uh, truth here is, is something that can be backed up by evidence. It's, it's not just some, some grandiose claim that you, that you have to believe. And today, of course, um, I think that's what's in question. We're not looking at evidence anymore. We just look at right. he said, she said, something like that, and it goes back and forth. What I'm suggesting is, uh, well, let's let's really look at what's true, uh, and and then let's uh, has, let's have a conversation about that. Look at it from the other side. Uh, what's false? I, I think that's that's the other important question here. We we have to figure out. What is not true in this situation? What what is the lie? And of course, that's also figured out best by giving the evidence. This is that malignant Christianity that we're talking about. You know, to say I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and your church is actually killing people. Well, uh, then that's sort of a claim that's already falsified by the evidence. So, so here, uh, looking a little more closely at what's your track record, uh, who are you, what's your history. That, that would help a great deal. Now, relativism is still sort of suspector in the room, but you do not overcome relativism by rejecting the fact that we're all relative. I mean, relativity is a fact of life. And so I'm suggesting acknowledge your relativity, tell your stories, give some, give some evidence, and then figure it out from there. Not anything goes, but let's actually see what is the fruits of your labor? Let's tell the stories of life-giving religion over against malignant religion. And, and then people can still be the judge. So you're not necessarily forcing anybody to believe you, but, but you're basing it on, on something that's very concrete and very practical. Yeah, it's not about, um, you know, this is anything goes. It's that some things go and some things don't go and maybe it was different things than we thought right jesus draws a line between he does draw lines he doesn't say anything goes he draws a line between mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the god of, of the kingdom of god and the god of caesar but he doesn't draw a line between himself and the samaritans he doesn't draw the line between certain figures that his community might be typically drawing a line between and it makes me think of the way that our culture um, encounters and often uh, silences and, and quite frankly oppresses our Muslim brothers and sisters. We right. we look at Islam and see it as other and, and draw that line in the sand. Whereas um, engaging with that in new ways, we might find that many of us, many Muslims that I know, are, are their faith is perpetuating them to create a better and more just society and world. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling me to do. So we're walking together on this journey much more closely than I'm walking with many of my fellow Christians. I wish we had a series of documentaries. Mm -hmm. And these documentaries would show the atrocities committed mm -hmm. by each one of these religions. And no one would, would be exempt. No one comes out very good. <laughs> no, and so, right. and I'm gonna probably butcher this, but there is a story told 
that on the day that the First Crusade reached Jerusalem and they uh, defeated Muslim uh, soldiers, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 people perished that day, according to this story. And that night, there was a feast of the communion where they thanked God that they slaughtered the enemy. And whether that story is totally accurate, we know those kinds of things happened. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's as if uh, people are unwilling to just look at what's there. Let's just look at what's there. Mm -hmm. Let's tell the truth about what's there. And I like it, Jorg, when you say, uh, who, where is the lie and who benefits from the lie? Yeah. What, who gets to do what they want to do by the lie? And who gets to manipulate people with the lie? Uh, so a lot of, uh, we need a lot of straightening out of people's, including my own, understandings about history and what actually has taken place. And we're living in an age when we're able to collect more and more evidence historically about things that happened. It's not perfect, but... So on the one hand, what Anne just said is uh, in, in Jesus's example, you find a lot of broadening, yeah. you know, the Samaritans, mm -hmm. the Syrophoenician woman is another one, yeah. even children mm -hmm. uh, who the disciples and a lot of the community wanted to exclude. And then David's example is a great example for where you have to draw the line. Mm -hmm. So you happen to be, I happen to be a Christian, but I have to say this crusading Christianity that kills 40 plus thousand people in one day and then celebrates the mm -hmm. Eucharist. This is not Jesus's Christianity. So what you're getting in the end is an interreligious dialogue that becomes open to what some of the others are saying, yet at the same time draws the lines uh, to religion where it doesn't work, where, where, it, where it breaks down, where it becomes malignant. This happens in other religions as well, so I'm not saying other religions don't have the problem, but we're talking about Christianity because this is where we find ourselves. And once you do it, uh, then I think you can really open up relationship with others in, in totally new ways. Well, this leads me to actually one of the questions uh, at the end of your chapter, and I'd like for you to respond directly to this. You ask, how has the quest for religious truth been death-dealing? And then, again, the next question, how has it been life-giving? And how has the quest for religious truth been death-dealing? So again, David's example is a good one, how, how um, blaming others or you know, scapegoating others has actually led to the real killing of them. Um, or you know, even in places where there was some religious tolerance, you know, as of the 19th century, liberal Protestant theology opens up recognizes the value of other religions, but still maintains a hierarchy. We're higher than the others. Uh, that oftentimes also led to problems because then um, maybe the result wasn't killing, but subordinating people, exploiting people, using people for your own purpose. Um, a lot of this happened in all kinds of ways, sometimes even well-meaning, you know, missionaries going out there uh, and never listening to other people uh, while talking all the time. So, so those are examples. The other side, you know, how has it been life-giving? Just recently, I was at a, at a meeting uh, in a faraway place, uh, Cambodia, sponsored by the World Council of Churches. 
that um, sponsored a new conversation between religions and concern for liberation. It was called Interreligious Dialogue and Liberation. There were about 15 of us from all the big world religions. And uh, this time we were not just talking religion, we were actually talking about the needs for liberation in our world where people are oppressed and how religions could actually make contributions to that. So here you could, of course, say it's life-giving in the sense that all religions are now making an effort uh, to change oppressive situations. And you could talk about lots of things, right? You could talk about the economic issues that we've talked about. Uh, you could talk about the race issues that we've talked about. Uh, you also need to talk about gender and sexuality, ethnicity, uh, various other things. Uh, those are the concerns for liberation. Now, what happens when religions work together on those cause, on, on those problems, is uh, they, they ultimately find a new way of relating. So now the relationship is not so much, am I right or are you right, but how can I help make a difference? How does my tradition actually help pull, you know, to use my earlier example, the drowning person out of the lake? And as you do that, there's no need to say we're exactly all alike, we're exactly the same thing, uh, or we're all completely different. Uh, you're now using the resources from your own tradition for the common good. And in the process, a conversation ensues. So now you can talk to the Buddhist or to the Hindu and say, you know, this is what motivates me. What is it that motivates you? And you may find there are different things, but you can now respect them and they're valued. So, so this is the sort of um, positive way forward that I'm suggesting. In the process, you're also saying, here are certain things that we're rejecting. So you're coming closer together, you're becoming clearer of who you are, and in the process, you're making a difference. Seems like a win-win situation. I like the way that you talk about this interreligious dialogue as um, I've seen a number of times folks who are invested in, in interreligious and interfaith dialogue say things like, you come together and you just realize we're not that different. We have, we're all pretty much the same when it comes down to it. And I don't hear you saying that, right. um, which I really appreciate because mm -hmm. that assumes that the goal is still this one truth, this top-down hierarchical truth that we are all not so different. We have the same truth. But what I'm hearing from you is that in fact, we're different and that's a good thing. Difference isn't something to be eliminated. When you come to the table, with different stories and different traditions and new perspectives, that can enrich my own experience. My my experience is rooted in the stories of Christianity and is rooted in the stories of Jesus in, in this particular re religious conversation. Those are the metaphors that come to me in moments of crisis and moments of joy. But as I hear my Jewish friends, my Muslim friends, my Buddhist friends explain how their tradition contributes to their interaction with the world, I don't want to eliminate that. I want to, to hear those stories. I often use the metaphor um, with students that we've been taught by many people that religions are teams in a sport. And we have our own team and we're a fan of that team. And if my team is winning, it means your team is losing. And, and events like the Crusades are prime examples of this, that is the Christians were quote unquote winning, the Muslims were losing. But what if religion isn't a sport? What if religion is a language? And and we've talked earlier today about, you know, Jorg and I could speak a moment of German. There are whole ideas that can be expressed in German that English can't get at. Right. That doesn't mean German's better than English. 
in fact, I don't express myself well in German. I express myself well in English because it's the language I already speak. And so I'm going to continue speaking English, not because it's superior, but because it's my communication style. Christianity is my spiritual language, right? It's the symbols and the traditions. It's the spiritual language that I speak in my community. So can, I, I don't think it's superior, but I'm not going to convert to another religion because that would be a lot more work. It would be learning a new right, language. Right. It might be valuable at times to express ideas that Christianity doesn't do a great job with. And I find great meaning in those distinctions. But that's why the interreligious dialogue right. is important. Yeah. So I, I want to ask this possibility, uh, and I'm not trying to be cute, but it just struck me. So as Christians, we don't need to say Christ is the only way or Jesus is the only way, but we could say Jesus' way is the only way, mm. right? I mean, the basic point of the chapter is to talk about Jesus precisely in terms of the Jesus way, in terms of a way of life, in terms of an actual history, an actual person. And so um, if you think about Jesus less than an, less as an idea, but as, as uh, certain practices, I think uh, you probably get closer to what you're saying. Um, but, but even then, you know, you'd have to say uh, you learn something about Jesus's way from looking at other kinds of ways. And, and sometimes these kinds of ways illuminate positively mm -hmm. because you learn something from other people, how you can also be compassionate and caring uh, and promote justice. And sometimes negatively, you can say, well, there are other ways uh, that actually do not lead to compassion and justice. And so in that sense, I, I think um, you're right. I mean, we have to look at these uh, embodied ways of life rather than just abstract ideas. But uh, you still have to say we, we need to have more than one. There was an old saying in in the world of religious studies about religion that went, whoever knows one knows none, because you do not know yourself until you know others also. And so mm -hmm. here the challenge becomes, how do we not only know others, but how do we get to know ourselves better in learning about others? Uh, the, the interesting thing about interreligious dialogue in the way that I'm suggesting is not only do you learn a lot more about other religions, but you learn something about your own religion that you didn't even know was there. You learn some things that you could not have learned without this relationship with others. And so in that sense, it's not just something we have to do because there are other religions around us, uh, interreligious dialogue is something that really is necessary for us to go, get to know ourselves. And I would also argue, uh, this is sort of back to the life and death question again, if we're really up against a struggle against death and malignant religion, um, we need to take all the help we can get. And so right. in this case, uh, it would be very arrogant to think that I have all the solutions. I, I can do it by myself. Yeah, I think um, that that valuation of difference is such a significant piece. I think that we are learning a lot as a society about that. I, um, you're, We were talking earlier about um, how generationally things just shifted so quickly um, when it comes to race even. So the generation ahead of me often use the term, well, I'm, I'm not racist, I'm colorblind. And very quickly, now the generation below me knows right away that to be colorblind is a, is a tragedy. That's, you can't be colorblind. And to be colorblind 
is this way of Caesar. It's this endorsement of the status quo. If I, as a white person, say I'm colorblind, that means that I don't see you if you're not white. It means that I don't see that it makes a difference how we move in the world. It doesn't mean that I, it means that I don't acknowledge my own whiteness. And those differences need to be brought to the fore in order to walk in the way of Jesus because it, it, those differences make a difference in how we move in the world. We can't, we can't just erase them. Well, go ahead, York. If you put that together uh, with, with this notion of you know, uh, the difference that Jesus makes, you could also say that we, we need all these differences, but we need to look at them from a lens of I mean, earlier we talked about the cross of of um, mm-hmm. suffering mm-hmm. and the struggle, and so say in the race discourse, um, you really have to pay attention to those uh, racial groups that are marginalized, that are pushed underground, and so uh, you develop your difference then with a strong sense as to who has been excluded, who has been uh, you know burdened by this, and in the process then again you learn something about yourself. And, and the good thing then for those in the dominant groups is you cannot change yourself also in, in relation to the other, which you could not do if it were just you by yourself. Right. And you mentioned that the difference between Jesus and Caesar. So again, we're talking about Jesus versus Caesar in your book. You say that the difference uh, between Jesus and Caesar is that the horizon is only truly broadened when we have the nerve to take a stand and draw a line. So help us make that relevant today. So back to the question of life and death again. If if there's something in our world that's death dealing and that could be economic, that could be political, that could be religious, uh, and it's happening and you don't draw a line what we said so far is that you're probably part of the problem, even if you don't, if you're not the perpetrator. You're sort of allowing it to happen. Once we draw that line, we figure out what's really important and what isn't important. And so you take that back to your own religion, and all of a sudden you figure out which parts of our traditions really speak here and and which are not so important. So you might realize that the rapture is not the most important <laughs> thing right now, but caring for your neighbor. Um, lifting up the lowly, pushing the powerful from their thrones, the sort of things we've talked about earlier that Mary talks about in the Gospel of Luke, that may be the important things. And so this is how you move forward. But you wouldn't know what to pick. I mean, it's the same with our Christian traditions. Earlier we talked about the Nicene Creed. You wouldn't know what's important about the Nicene Creed if you weren't aware of what's the battle that we're fighting at this moment. And so so that's what I'm calling for. The reason I talk about Caesar is not to put up a scapegoat, but really to help us see Jesus more clearly. Absolutely. Yeah, and I know that we are out of time. There are a couple of questions towards the end of this book that I'm just going to read so that it allows the uh, listeners to have something to think about uh, on top of everything that York has said. And I love, uh, York, I love you posing the question of what are the sources of terror and destruction in our world and what is the evil from which we need to be delivered? And I wish we had time for you to talk about that, but we will have you back and we will talk about that in great depth. Um, So thank you again, Jorg, for uh, being with us through these past five episodes. I know that I have benefited greatly 
um, I do hope that our audiences have and I'm absolutely it's been just so so great to talk I wish we could do this not just for another few minutes but for you know continuing on into eternity but <laughs> well, we'll have him back we'll have him back David I thank you for your contribution thank you. and um, would like to uh, invite people to know that uh, our Faith and Reason uh, 360 podcasts are free, but you can help support us by a small donation by visiting our website at faithandreason.org, F-A-I-T-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-S-O-N.org. And again, uh, Dr. York's book is available online. This is such an exciting uh, new book. Also, Dr. York has 22-plus other books that he has written or edited. I invite you to just uh, treat yourself to any of those. We're just featuring this particular one during this uh series of podcasts. So if you are interested, you can visit Amazon.com where you can purchase Dr. York's books. Please be sure that you uh, look for Jesus versus Caesar by Jorg Rieger, J-O-E-R-G-R-I-E-G-E-R. And again, Jorg, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being with you and enjoyed it. Great. Thank you. This program is produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. God chose Israel, remembering mercy, according to the promise to those he made before, to Sarah, to Abraham, to Hagar, to their children's children evermore.